Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, and welcome back to a very special episode of The Founder Podcast. Today, instead of listening to one guest, you're going to hear from multiple renowned founders about a specific challenge that we all face on our entrepreneurial journey. These guests will share their stories, solutions, and how you can learn to build your business better. In this episode, we're going to focus on the challenge of finding the right business partners, everything from co-founders to even influencers, featuring Gene Olwang, founding CEO and president of Virgin Unite and author of Partnering on how to forge deep connections that make great things happen. Emma Greet, co-founder of Skims, Good American and Safely. Nick Merkovich and Alex Tomic, co-founders of High Smile. 
David Lester, co-founder of Olipop, Rainer Penchansky, co-founder and CEO of Digital Brand Architects and co-founder of Dear Media, Aaron Deering, founder of Triangle Swimwear, and Jess Hatzis, co-founder of Frank Body. To get started, we're going to jump into my conversation with Gene Olwang, defining what makes a real business partnership work. So we went on a mission and we were looking for two things. Um, one was they had to have longevity in their partnership. And then the second is that they had to use their partnership to have made a bigger difference in the world. So we found some that lots of people will know, like Ben and Jerry or Archie Tutu and Leah, but then tons of leaders from all over the world that people may not know, like Lester and Ray, who are fighting the death penalty every day in America. And then interviewed about 65 of them after we made that selection over those 15 years. And it was so beautiful because even though they were all different kinds of partnerships, friends or family, business, it was beautiful to see the common patterns that came up amongst all the partnerships. Mm. So you hear stories like some of these that you're talking about where a company from a commercial standpoint partners with another business and it's game changing for that business. Yeah. Um, if I talk from personal experience, I've always found partnerships incredibly difficult to bring to life. You, you know, I remember one time there was uh, WeWork, famous WeWork before they became not so famous. Yeah. Uh, they wanted to do a big partnership with us and, you know, we were going to get the magazine digitally and, you know, as a gift to every single member and they had, you know, oh, well, wow. well over like 50, 100,000 plus members all yeah. around the world. And it was when they raised a ton of money, they didn't have the bad press and all the stuff, the crazy stuff that happened next. And and uh, they were doing a lot of acquisitions, all sorts of things. And I remember I was talking to them and we're going up and back and they wanted to test it out and this and that. And it just never ended up going anywhere. And I've, I, that seems for me personally, when we try and do partnerships with other like-minded businesses that perhaps have a similar mission to us in terms of supporting entrepreneurs or or facilitating their growth in some way, shape or form, it just never comes to life. And mm. I, I'd love to hear kind of what are the things that you see people and people that people often do wrong when it comes to partnerships or, or they don't come to life? Or what are the things that people need to look for to be able to, to find that that ripe fit? Yeah, this is a super important question because I think even the great partnerships that we interviewed, it was super hard work. It wasn't easy. But I think the way some of them fail, there's a few things because we talked to tons of people to figure out why a partnership fails as well as why they're successful. And the things that came out are things like a lack of shared meaning. So if you don't have that kind of something bigger, that intoxicating purpose that you're headed towards, it's hard for the partnership to stay together, particularly in a business partnership or a collaboration. One of the other things was um, disconnected values. So you didn't have the same set of values and principles, yes. which is breaks up a partnership almost immediately. The other one was an imbalance in commitment. So if one partner really wants to do this and is all in, and the other one's about you know maybe 50% in, it'll eventually crack because one will feel like they're putting in a lot more than the other one. And then two other things that came up. One was this kind of roller coaster of drama of, you know, it's some partnerships that come together that aren't supposed to be together. They just have this constant 
constant friction and conflict that they can't get through the other side of. And mm. you see that ha- happen sometimes. And then the last one is something we call the superhero syndrome, where if one partner thinks they have all the right answers, they're the number one, then the other partner is going to tire of that over time. So this is some of the reasons we saw them break uh, rather than be successful. Mm. You talked about one which definitely rings true is is that, you know, that mutually beneficial exchange in value creation. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking just of a partnership we tried again, like we've tried many times, and, <laughs> and there was one, I'm not going to say the company's name, it was. it is a well-known company, and, uh, oh, look, they were really kind of tit for tat around you got to do this we got to do that and we did some stuff and then it didn't do that well and they did some stuff and and yeah in the end it was just like you know what like let's just like stop yeah how do you find you get the right balance for that mutually beneficial exchange in value and then it yeah it felt like they were just trying to take as yeah. much as they could yeah and that you shouldn't partner with them it's just such a waste of energy then you know that's the other thing is really deciding who you there's a continuum of you're going to have a lot of deep connection deep partnerships on one side and then a lot of light touch acquaintances and i think choosing who you invest your time in is so important and i think it is that intoxicating something bigger that you have that kind of thing that you're both there for that gives you the kind of i guess strength and power to kind of push through some of the difficult moments when you're first figuring each other out and i remember we merged um the carbon war room which was this entity we'd set up that was really about market-based models to reduce carbon. And then we came together with this science-based group that was more technology-based, which are gaps that we were missing, um, called Rocky Mountain Institute. So you had Richard Branson, the crazy entrepreneur, and then Amory Levins, the crazy scientist. And we merged those two organizations some um, 10 years ago now almost, maybe eight years ago. And in the beginning, the merged organizations were 15 million and dollars annually. Now they are over 200 million, 400 people, and they're doing amazing work with energy transformation, with Mm. sector by sector, industries with business. And I think that's an example of where it really works, where you have complementary skills, you're not competing with each other. There's a, a real reason to come together because our ultimate goal was scaling the energy transformation. And, uh, and that has been an extraordinary partnership, but it wasn't easy. It was like we had to decide we were gonna give up our brand in the early days, which was a tough thing, and it was a right decision. And then we had to figure out how we merged two incredible teams, which was also something we had to thoughtfully do. And then it was just figuring out what does that joint strategy look like? So I think there aren't a lot of mergers like that, particularly mm-hmm. in the not-for-profit sector, also sometimes in the business sector, because they are hard work and it takes a lot of effort. But my gosh, the other side of that has just been amazing. How do you know when to keep going? Because you said oftentimes it, that this can happen where it's kind of a bit rocky. Mm. How do you know if to keep going and keep pursuing or persisting with the partnership? Yeah, I think if you can't see a shared something bigger on the other side, something that's going to have tremendous impact if you come together as businesses and if mismatch values, like if you see respect not there in the beginning, like equal respect as a partner. Um, and like when you're saying tit for tat, that's not building a partnership. That's more they were just trying to get from you what they could. Mm. And I think you have to go into a partnership thinking about what you can give through your partnerships rather than what you can get. And if people don't have that mentality, 
it's not worth trying to pursue that because you will just be in this transactional game that will never get to a deep connection relationship between the two organizations. So if you're building a business today, working with influencers and content creators is now an integral part of your growth. Here you can listen to Emma Greed share why she has the best celebrity business partners in the world. Such a huge part of my job was always, you know, coming to Hollywood because I was based in London at that time and meeting agents, managers, publicists, business managers, and developing relationships with them. And so at that time, when you go back to like 2012, 2013, Chris Jenner was a manager. You know, she's a manager of this, you know, incredible family, but really back then it was Kim. And um, and she was another manager that I would have lunch with and meet. And, you know, Chris is an incredible manager. She would always, again, like paint the picture of like, where are they going? What are they doing? What are the dreams? What are the aspirations? And so I had a really clear idea coming out of ITB and having worked on so many, you know, um, talent equity participation agreements. I was like, oh, I know that this is something that will be interesting to Christiana because she had graduated her family past that point of like just doing endorsements. Mm -hmm. And so when I had the idea around Good American, I was like, Chloe Kardashian is just going to get this. She's going to understand. And I know that she's looking for something where she can be more involved than just kind of coming in and shooting for a day. And so I pitched it to Chris first um, as like, you know, a manager contact. I was like, hey, I've got something for one of your clients. Your client is your daughter, but, you know. And she was like, cool, then, um, you know, you should. She said, when you're next in LA, you should pitch it directly to Chloe. And I was like, well, funny you should say that. I'm coming next week. I wasn't, of course. Um, I flew specifically for the meeting. But, you know, it was uh, it was those early those early hustle days. And, you know, I think so much of business, even now, right, it's about building relationships and having and listening, you know, really understanding like what there is a need for, what people want to do. And I was, you know, lucky that I could make the stars align um, there with Good American because I knew I had an incredible uh, product. I knew I had an incredible idea and that there was a real addressable market. And it just so happened that when I pitched the idea to Chloe, she was the girl, she was the customer, she was the woman that I was trying to reach out to. And she had been in this position for a long time, you know, being around her sisters, going onto sets to shoot various different things. And there being rails of clothes for the girls because they were like more regular size, if you like, and, um, and not so much for her. And so she immediately understood the problem and sympathized with the customer. And that was really the, the genesis of Good American came from, you know, me having an idea and a soul for a product that would work for a curvier body shape and Chloe fundamentally understanding the problem and being that customer. And when you put those two things together, it kind of made for this like magical, you know, magical launch really. Now, Greed isn't the only founder we've interviewed who's worked with the Kardashian family. High Smile co-founders Nick and Alex built their smile care brand from scratch through word of mouth influence by celebrities like Kim Kardashian. I asked them about their seemingly overnight success story and how they've developed their influencer partnerships. You guys have done a lot of cool stuff on the influencer side. You've worked with, I think, is it all the Kardashians? Yeah, we've worked with, I'd say, yeah, all the, all the Kardashians, bar maybe one or two. Now, I know... You probably can't share exact details around the commercial arrangement arrangements. Can you give us like kind of a 
an indicative figure around what that kind of investment is at any capacity to work with them? And why do you choose to work with like influencers this big? Does it, do you get the return? I guess that's what people would be curious about, right? Like, is it worth it? hundred percent. I think that's what people ask every single day. It's like, is that worth it working with Kim? Kim's a a massive face um, for the brand. We work with her a lot on a lot of our products. Look, when it comes down to what something's worth, I think it's looking at the business holistically. Work, like when you look at Nike, for example, they'll attach themselves to certain figures, not just to sell more product, but to tell a story, to tell a story to retailers and and to it to sell dreams to to potential customers as well. For us, we look at it in a similar way, working and engaging with Kim to launch a product. Um, get does it get sales? It gets sales. Does it get attention? It gets attention, but. It takes the brand forward. It positions the brand where we want the brand to be positioned. It taps into a customer that we we want to sort of get the attention of. Um, and it obviously helps and assists now that we're in retail, helps and assists our retailers um, with driving people in store and, and making High Smile the beast that it is today. I think just working with big talent um, isn't going to make a brand, make or break a brand. I think for us, influencers now is if – maybe less than 5% of what we do and where we put our dollars and where we put our attention. Like you look at, we spoke on R&D, other marketing avenues, retail support, um, the team itself and what we do there, spending money on our own internal culture to to get that team sort of firing and make them want to work for High Smile. Um, Influences went from something that was such a huge part of our business to now probably where it should be around 5% of what we do and where we put our energy and focus. And I think- yeah, for sure. Working with someone like Kim elevates a brand, positions us above a lot of the competitors. Like when you talk about our space, I don't think some of the big brands are cool enough to work with a character like Kim. And I don't think some of the smaller brands are reputable enough to work with someone like Kim. So we're in this unique place where where Kim is a is a great influencer for our brand and a great um, face for the brand and and someone who I think has a unique alignment with High Smile compared to any other brand in our category. David Lester worked with celebrities like Camilla Cabello and Gwyneth Paltrow to make his organic soda company a category contender. But Lester says influencer partnerships are overvalued. Celebrity is very overvalued in terms of what it can do for your brand. I'd say everything is overvalued. Ultimately, whether your brand is, and this should be reassuring, whether your brand and company is successful or not really comes down to you and your immediate team. It's not going to be the consultants you have working for you or, you know, um, and so I, I'd say that straight out the gates. Um, all of these things can help for sure, but the, the, I don't, I wouldn't say they're defining. Um, so never be afraid to walk away from, from anything that, that feels uncomfortable to you. Um, never let anybody oversell their, what they're going to deliver what, versus what you're going to do with the brand. But that being said, um, there's, an, there's a, uh, a saying from John Haggerty from BBH that always stuck with me, which is do interesting things and interesting things will happen to you. Um, I think that's really, we found that for sure. Um, we started off with a very interesting product. I mean, it's fantastic what Ben developed. It's a very unique thing. Um, we saw value in that. We held the value in that and, and, you know, saw the value in ourselves as we went to market uh, with humility um, and other people were attracted to what we were doing because it was interesting, you know, so everything from 
the minions partnership that we did came at us organically we, we have people reaching out a lot um i mean when universal reached out to us the minions yeah we said to them look this would be great but you realize we're a small company <laughs> like we're not coke um and you know they said look we understand we just think it's really cool what you guys are doing and we, we would love to partner with your brand and all the celebrities that have come in have a have an authentic connection with the brand so Camila Cabello we got put in touch with her because she was drinking the product herself she I think she was pictured drinking it at Erewhon and you know we got put in touch and we spoke about it and she spoke really passionately about um you know her upbringing in a Hispanic community and the, the impact that she'd seen of soda on that community and how committed she was to doing something about that and and was really interested to partner with us so you know it was very organic and authentic and so you know getting money from celebrities is is great I mean getting money from anywhere is great to be honest um but what is really interesting and difficult is finding that sort of authentic link up and I think when you do that's when it it gets you know that that's when it starts to have impact otherwise you know if a celebrity is just endorsing it because they've been paid to do so then consumers see that now and they it, it doesn't really resonate too much so you know we've actually just shot and produced an ad with uh, Camilla and um, you know we're about to launch that in May and we're super excited for it and I think it it really resonates with her and, and resonates with us because we we thought that through together and where the overlap is for her brand and what she's trying to do and, and what we're trying to do as well. Yeah, I think um, when it comes to working with thought leaders at any capacity, it can be, if you align them with your brand, it can be a really strong way to build trust. Um, uh, even from a consumer's mind, from association, even if it is paid or not, it's interesting to hear that that you don't believe that it's as it's as strong as it used to be as a trust builder. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know it's it's always exciting when a celebrity gets involved, when somebody important or famous you know shows interest in what you're doing. It can be extremely validating, you know, because I've sat there in a room in my bedroom working on something and all of a sudden um you know when Paltrow and Camila Cabello were interested in it and you know I, I think having humility also keeps that in perspective as well that um you know your ego doesn't run away with you um and uh and and yeah you know really I could count on one hand I think the times that celebrities have really materially impacted the trajectory of a brand's growth um and it's a difficult thing to pull off you know uh majority of instances you know the celebrity partnership really doesn't do too much at all so one of the areas that we found you know we started on instagram when we launched that was about five years ago and instagram was huge for us and we just built a community of people that you know really loved the product and just organically shared around it and now TikTok is is massive for us and you know we we have a platform that allows our consumers to get paid for sharing about the brand um, organically um, and you know we partner again with people pretty authentically around what we're doing and I think it's an easy it's an easy brand uh, in that space a because 
people genuinely are constantly telling me, you know, this product really solves a problem for me, you know, and so they can talk about it. I think beverage as a category is, is an interesting one. It's quite sticky and soda is so emotionally resonant for people that, um, you know, there's a lot of cultural, cultural references, uh, to talk about with it, which as a marketer makes it a really, really interesting category to be in. That's, it gets harder dependent on the category that you're in and the brand. If we're in a more commoditized space, that gets trickier. But, you know, Coca Pepsi is some of the most iconic brands in consumed goods. Soda is one of the most highly engaged categories. So we really aim to leverage that, you know, to our, to our advantage. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Rainer Penchansky's company has nurtured more than 200 prominent social media influencers, including Olivia Ponton, Patrick Starr, Amy Song, and Clee Shearer, and Joanna Teplin of The Home Edit. And I asked her about the state of influencer marketing right now. You know, our business continues to grow year over year, which is obviously, you know, knock on wood, I'm knocking on wood. Um which is amazing. And I don't think that there's any, I mean, you know, we all see the stats in terms of the percentage of Gen Z that want to be influencers is staggering. I think the last stat I saw was 82%. Um, so the, the, the industry is not going anywhere. I think that because there are so many people though in the industry and people who want to do it, you, you have to really have a very strong point of view. Um, I think it's gonna create a lot of niche industries um, you sort of see that on TikTok with clean talk or gardening talk or, you know, sort of things that are very niche, but are obviously, you know, incredible, create incredible content and really good businesses around them. But it's all about sort of this community and how you're engaging with this community, whereas it used to be that influencers were these massive sort of lifestyle creators and they 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 checked every box in terms of the kind of content they were creating. And now you're seeing just sort of the nicheification, I think, of, of content and of influencers, you know, brands believe it or not, brands' budgets are still small as it relates to what they're spending, you know, on influencers. So I think, you know, there's only room to grow there. I think one of the things that we recently started to focus on at TBA is in addition, obviously, to, you know, our creators who are incredible and 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 are really diversified in terms of what their revenue streams look like, but also adding on a layer um, of user-generated content and being able to sort of work with brands on figuring out a sort of different layer of content that's more of just sort of evergreen content that isn't necessarily personality driven. So I just think the future is going to be, we're all on our phones and we're all on these platforms essentially 24 seven. So that's where the eyeballs are. And it's going to be a race to figure out how to get someone's attention and then the sort of layers of that attention. 
Yeah. Can you talk us through the layers, what you mean by that? So I think there's obviously like you have traditional celebrities, you have traditional content, and then you have large scale, you know, you have massive influencers, you have sort of, you know, in, um, influencers who are at a just sort of one step below a massive influencer, then you're going to have micro influencers and nano influencers. And then you have sort of even user generated content. I just think that, you know, everyone in some way, shape or form, where either you're a brand or a person or a personality or a pet, you have a social platform. And so, you know, it's a matter of sort of figuring out and being and for brands to be sort of diversified in how they're approaching um, creators and the creator economy. And I also think you have to be smart about someone's community. You can be this incredibly astounding, you know, we have, for instance, there's an incredible food influencer who we work with, but she she has an inc incredible, insane, insanely high conversion on Shopbop, which is fashion. And so it's really starting to get into the sort of metadata around like who the, who the creator is that you're working with, what their audience wants, how do you engage with them? And just being smart about, you know, again, it's authentic, organic, are buzzwords, but they really are true. It's like you have to find people who have a community that speaks to what it is that you're trying to, you know, how do you cut through the noise? I think that the space by its nature, especially I think women in this space, want to lift other, other creators up and want to lift small businesses up. And so I think that if you're organic in your intent and you really are thoughtful in terms of how you approach someone, an influencer, celebrity, someone with a large following, and are thoughtful in terms of what you say to them and how you approach them, I think that you would, I think people will be surprised at how much traction you can get from that. I think you have to come from a place of, you know, understanding their value, um, understanding what you can sort of bring to them, how you can have a symbiotic relationship and how you can appeal to them, you know, which is, I don't have a ton of money. I'm not, you know, I'm not coming from that place, but I'd love to be able to engage with you. And this, I, you know, because of X, Y, and Z thing that you do that I love this piece of content, I thought that such and such thing that I have would really fit well into that and come at it from a really authentic place. And I think you can get a lot of traction from that. And then I think also just be sort of targeted. Um, and I think that, again, it's just about finding people who speak to your audience. It's it's hard to sort of come at it from the point of view of, I, I you know, most businesses starting out aren't going to have a huge budget. So you just have to be incredibly thoughtful and try and find like genuine connection. And I do think that TikTok and Instagram are still places where you can find that genuine connection and find people who are going to really help in the process. I mean, you see it on TikTok all the time, which is I'm a small business. I'm trying to get to X many views. Can you help me out? And people are, you know, ready. One of the critical partnerships in business is your manufacturer. We're going to find out what happened when Erin Deering's manufacturer betrayed her trust. How long did it take for you to go from idea conception to first customer to launch? Yeah, look, so idea conception was 2011 in October, November. Yep. And then we sold our first bikini online in January 2013. Yeah, okay, so, it so would have been, it was, it was a while. Yeah. Um, it didn't, it, yeah, it didn't feel like that. I think that was that first half of 2012 when we were in Melbourne, that was just getting ready to move. And yes. so that was exciting and it was so much potential. And and then when that second half of 2012 was incredibly stressful because we'd given everything up. We were in Hong Kong, we were flat broke. We didn't even have money to go back home and we knew we couldn't go back home. We had to try everything to get this you know, brand to, to launch. And um, so that was six months of real hustle and we had to borrow some money off a few friends to really get, you know, to, to pay our rent and yeah, to pay wow. to get some product out there. And what was MOQ? 
It was, re- we were so fortunate. It was really, really low. It was like 400 pieces, which now doesn't happen at all. And that's a real hurdle for people, I think, especially trying to launch a business that's selling a product is MOQs are so bloody high. And if they're, if they're lower, the cost goes through the roof. Mm. So we were really, really lucky. We'd found an amazing manufacturer in China. We went to trade shows in the start and just sampled with a few, found a really good one. They ended up completely screwing us, but that's another story. Oh, let's hear um, that. Yeah. Let's hear that. Yeah, tell us about that. What happened? <laughs> well, they, they copied us and they started making our products on the side and selling them in China and tried to register our name in China. So we learned about IP and trademarks in a really painful way because we didn't do it at the start because it cost money. We didn't have money. And we also didn't know that it would become what it would become. So when they when we found out they were copying us, which was about 2014, and it wasn't just them, everyone then came and copied us, like every brand in the world that was doing swimwear did a triangle version. Um, and yeah, but they were, the, they were the worst. They were trying to claim our brand and they did a mimic website. And yeah, it was pretty tough. It was pretty stressful, but we learned a lot through it. And we really just kind of, we got our you know, name trademarked in every other place we could um, and I can't even recall if we did in China in the end um, but they did eventually go away and that was just through us just I guess at the end of the day just ignoring them and focusing on innovating and making better product and and moving to another manufacturer as well <laughs> yeah but that was stressful we lost all our product um, because we left them and they wouldn't give us any of our swimwear so we had a good month or so where we didn't have any bikinis to sell and we were still selling them online because we didn't really know if we'd get it back or not and it was yeah there were some real pain points there yeah yeah, yeah it's actually a good one because this is common right yes. like you have a hot yeah. product yeah it's being manufactured in china you do the alibaba thing yeah like literally this my my fiance's bottle yeah healthish this was the first time mark water bowl like really made and now yeah. everyone's copied it. Oh gosh, like, yeah, it's everywhere, yeah. right? And that's what people just do. And so, yeah. what? How did you work through that? What were the lessons? Because it's yeah. so easy for this to happen. Yeah. Well, the China one was, you know, that was because they weren't pushing into our market. It didn't feel as stressful. It was awful, but we were able to sort of, you know, I guess like separate that from our what we were selling in Australia and the US. When brands like Victoria's Secret copied us and they were very, very aggressive in doing every single bikini that we did and just copying us, you know, straight up. Um, And we, you know, tried to take them on legally, which, you know, you start the process and realize you're about to go down an incredibly expensive path. So we did all those initial aggressive, you know, like this isn't fair and we're going to go after them and how dare they. And then you kind of it's, you're stressed, you know, you're up every night till 2 a.m. looking, finding copies and people are sending them to you and, and you know, and that was obviously just, it was going to happen. And But when you're in it, it's so tough to kind of step away from it. But you really have to, you have to go, you know what, this won't stop. I can, you know, bang my fist, make as much noise as possible, send cease and desist letters, do whatever. But at the end of the day, they'll keep doing it. What we have to have faith in, what we have to do as a brand is innovate, step, keep pushing forward, know that we created that. They don't have the talent to keep creating because they're copying. So let's keep creating. And we were really fortunate to be able to keep doing that and, and you know, I guess like deviate and, and move away from, from, you know, what we were doing 
or and still know that you know and also still know that what you're making people will still buy that even if there are copies they still will want the original um, as long as you're still making other product and not getting too stuck because it's such a investment of your time and energy to throw at people copying you and it's taking away from your innovation and your creation of, of anything new and we just we just saw that happening we saw that we were spending our days doing that as opposed to creating anything new so we just went well we've just got to create new things you know put the blinkers on and just keep pushing forward and they all went away and finally jess hatzis breaks down the challenges of working with friends and co-founders and really how to navigate those partnerships as your business grows. I'm curious around just your co-founders and the different roles they play. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. Because originally you had four or five co-founders, right? There were five of us. Yes. Um, one co-founder moved on about seven years ago. Yep. Um, now there's four remaining co-founders and we've been friends for, I don't know, 15 or so years um, Bree, who I co-founded Willow and Blake with, um, we've we've found it really interesting because our background and our expertise are so similar. So it was always more challenging for us to sort of carve out our own unique path. At the four of us, for the first couple of years, it was a, just a jumbled mess. Like we we're all trying to do everything. We had our lanes that we naturally went into, but we didn't sort of clarify our roles enough. I think that was a really big challenge for us in those early years. As a founder, you feel like you're supposed to be across everything. So you need to take a step back, clarify your role if you've got multiple founders and just stay in your lane. And when you come together to ask questions, that's your time. But there's nothing more frustrating than someone like sticking their head into your project halfway through in any role as a founder or an employee and then like getting out and like getting in the way and changing what you're trying to do. I also think it's a waste of time. Mm. Like someone's already doing that job. Don't just double up and do the same thing. Do the job that you need to do. So now we're much better at that. So Steve is CEO, Alex is COO, I'm CMO and Bree is head of new revenue and growth. And so she's been leading a really cool project that we're launching next year. Um, and that was always a challenge for Brie and I too, who's going to take on that role of CMO. And we sort of naturally found our positions and Brie is far, far better at people management and seeing projects through from beginning to end than I am. I, she just knocks me out of the park doing that. So that role was just so suited for her. Um, so yeah, we finally found our way and we just come together in a founder catch up each week and that's when we use our, ch- our time to sort of cross over and work on projects. Yeah. So uh, how, what was your role in the original days and how have the roles changed? We didn't have titles. So, no and titles. We, no titles and we did everything. So every component you could think of that falls into the remit of marketing, myself, Bree and Eri did. And we just did all of it together because in those days it was a volume game. Yeah. Um, so... We managed all the PR, we did all of the community service and customer, um, the community management and customer service. We did all of the influencer posting, like sending out product and all the communication, all of the content creation, emails. We just, you just don't stop working until we brought on our first employee and they started to do the customer service. And then we brought on the next person and they took PR off our hands. Um, And it was about three Two or three years in, I put my hand up and said, I'd really like to take on a formalized role as creative director. Yes. And I did that role for a portion of time. We had an external employee come in and she took on the CMO role. So none of the founders were doing it. Yes. Because we didn't feel that we had that expertise at that time. 
fast forward another five years and I really felt ready to take on that CMO role. So I put my hand up again and said, this is how I'd like to evolve my role. I've grown past the point of wanting to be creative director and I think that's often forgotten about founders. You also have the need and the desire to progress in your career. You don't want to be doing the same thing day in, day out for 15 years. So um, I took on that role of CMO about four years ago. Um, went on mat leave briefly in between there, and that was a challenge in itself. But, yeah, I do love this role. Talk to me about friends and business. You said you guys were friends for 15 years or have been friends for 15 years, so five years in you started this incredible company. How have you been able to manage those relationships? Because people often talk about, like, don't mix friends with business. It's not without its challenges. I I think when you have that layer of friendship involved, you're, when you need to have difficult conversations, you're worried about how it's going to impact your friendship outside of work. Um, we've gotten much better at that. In the early days, I'd say that we just didn't talk about things that we needed to enough. And, you know, if someone wasn't pulling their weight, which will naturally happen, I would have been that person at one point in time. Like everyone got ebbs and flows in the way that they bring motivation and energy to work. We, we wouldn't have talked about that. Whereas now we're so much better at just having honest conversations with each other and understanding that this is a conversation happening inside the workplace and I'm still going to go out and see you on the weekend. We're going to get all our kids together and have a fantastic time. I think that comes with the level of maturity as you get older as well. You know, 35-year-old me versus 25-year-old me are two different people and I cared so much about what other people thought. I was terrified of confrontation. So I would never say what I thought and then... If you're that type of person, it will resonate with you when I say you have a lot of anger inside you because you have so many things that you haven't said. They're just building up. And now I just try not to do that and will talk honestly and give my opinion about things. Um, I think that's true of any workplace, but it's particularly true when there's friendships involved. And making sure you have honest conversations is without a doubt the way to preserve a friendship. So we're very lucky that we all still love each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's those honest conversations that's what builds trust. And if everyone can have those real conversations, have those honest conversations, that's how you can build trust. And with that trust, then you build solid relationships. Yeah. And I think that going back to our previous points around clarifying JDs, mm. like it's th- simple things like that, frameworks that help everyone understand what each other's doing. So you don't have to ask questions. You can look at someone's JD, you can look at their KPIs. You know what it is that they're working towards. It automatically takes away the what are you doing every day sort of question that comes up naturally in business. Okay, guys. So building a business requires you to build partnerships. It's a totally different set of skills than product development or sales, but it's necessary to achieve your goals. We never build a business alone. And I hope these stories inspire you to find mutually beneficial partnerships and really bring your business to the next level. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. 
So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.